Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. Welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> We're here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will- we, Republican we, 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 rhetoric is ramping up, even if the primary is just limping along. It's Friday, February 23rd, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, it takes a village to land something on the moon. We'll speak with one of the proverbial villagers who helped do it. And whether it's late winter, false spring, or mild weather where you are, Kathy Gunst has a soup recipe for you. And yes, she says it's worth it, and not that hard, actually, to make your own stock. Here's the deal. Stock is the spine, the base of the soup. It's where all the flavor comes from. If you use a cruddy variety from the supermarket, you'll Mm. have a good soup. Will you have a great soup? Maybe not. Three new soup recipes coming up in about 15 minutes. But first, our weekly politics roundtable. The war in Ukraine enters its third year tomorrow, and there are real questions about whether new sanctions imposed today by President Biden and the European Union will do anything to slow down the Russian war machine, any more than past sanctions have, at least. Tomorrow is also when South Carolinians vote in the Republican primary, and former Governor Nikki Haley says she'll keep campaigning, even if she loses her home state. And Democrats are seizing on last Friday's Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos preserved in the course of fertility treatments are legally people in the state. That's where our Friday Politics Roundtable began their discussion this week. Margaret Tollev of Axios and Darlene Superville of the AP joined Peter O'Dowd and Scott Tong to talk about all that and more. Well, let's start with the, uh, the ruling on embryos. Creating them in the lab and freezing them is central to how in vitro fertilization works. Last week, the Alabama Supreme Court, of course, ruled embryos are, quote, extrauterine children protected against wrongful death. Now, the state justices in Alabama are all Republican. And yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris, Democrat, called out Republican hypocrisy. So on the one hand, the proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to and an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, the individual does not have a right to start a family. So Darlene, Democrats already think they have a powerful issue in abortion access in 2024. Do you think they'll elevate this issue, IVF, in the campaign? Oh, absolutely. We heard some of that yesterday from the vice president. We've been hearing it from other Democrats. Um, President Biden's campaign is also raising this as an issue. And trying to tie what the Alabama Supreme Court did to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade almost two years ago. Uh, 
for Democrats, campaigning on the overturning of Roe has proved to be somewhat successful for them mm. in elections since that ruling was overturned, and they're seeing what the Alabama Supreme Court did in that same vein, along the same um, infringement upon mm -hmm. women's rights to reproductive health care, and they're also, you know, looking to use it again this fall and hope, hoping it will be to their benefit. And this has already been kind of tricky for Republicans. Nikki Haley initially supported the mm. ruling. She called the embryo an unborn baby. But then on CNN last night, her message kind of shifted. She said, protect embryos and protect couples seeking IVF services to become parents. We don't want fertility treatments to shut down. We don't want them to stop doing IVF treatments. We don't want them to stop doing artificial insemination. We want to make sure that people are able to have these blessings. So, Margaret, uh, former Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway says IVF is overwhelmingly popular among evangelicals. She's warning Republicans not to ban it. This morning, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey told member station WBHM in a statement that she supports legislation that would fix the IVF treatment dilemma here. How do you expect Republicans to navigate this? Uh, it's quite a pickle, right? Uh, so I think you are going to start seeing this already legislation emerging in Alabama. On the one hand, you have the prospect of this really further balkanizing red states and blue states. If there are um, uh, the kind of um, uh, anti-abortion movement or um, uh, religious uh, Republicans uh, want to kind of take the ball and, and run with this in other states, you could see uh, pressure on IVF in in red states, and you could see a further, you know, kind of where politics meets science sort of split. And then on the other hand, exactly as you said, uh, fertility issues cut across uh, all sectors of America, whether you are Republican or Democrat. They cut across, um, you know, race. They they cut across um, economic sectors. It's much harder to have IVF treatments um, if you don't mm. have money, but it doesn't mean you don't want them. And and the Pew numbers um, out just last fall really tell the story. Four out of ten adults now, forty two percent of Americans say they've uh, either used fertility treatments themselves or in their personal lives know someone who has. Mm. Those numbers wow. have been rising, forty two percent. You know, one out of ten. U.S. women uh, have received fertility services themselves, according to these numbers. And when you ask Americans, should your health insurance cover fertility treatments? Should your health insurance cover fertility treatments? Um, look at this. More than half of Republicans across the United States say that the answer to that is yes. And another mm. basically third say they're not sure. So there is wide support across party lines for this. And mm -hmm. it just goes to show how complicated this issue is. Yeah, well, let's uh, mention the, the lead Republican in the country, former President Trump. He spoke last night to Christian broadcasters, did not mention this issue. Um, he also said very little about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died last week in prison. And I want to ask about that. Uh, President Biden and many leaders say President Putin killed Navalny, directly or indirectly. Biden met Thursday with Navalny's widow and daughter, and today he announced new sanctions on Moscow, urging Congress to pass aid for Ukraine. The clock is ticking. Brave Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are dying. Russia. Russia is taking Ukraine territory for the first time in many months. But here in America, the Speaker gave the House a two-week vacation. Uh, Biden is talking a lot about this, Darlene. But the question is, does he really have leverage over Russia to, to hurt Putin? 
That is the question, right? Um, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the White House come out with new sanctions uh, on Russia and in, res- in, in response to the upcoming second anniversary of the war, but also in response mm. to Navalny's death. And the president a few years ago had said there would be consequences for President Putin if something were to happen to Navalny. And we're here at that moment. And so his hand is kind of forced in a way. And he does have to act and try to show that the U.S. is doing something to uh, um, to hold the Russian government accountable for what happened. Um, but I think one of the larger questions that always remains in the air when we're talking about sanctions is whether they actually work or not. Remember two years ago, European countries, the United States, uh, imposed imposed a boatload of sanctions on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. And mm-hmm. we're coming up to the second anniversary of that war and uh, the Russian president doesn't seem uh, any more deterred or uh, hampered in his uh, ambitions to take over Ukraine. Yeah, and Margaret, we know that Ukraine and Russia is a political issue. Is it so much a campaign issue? In the United States or in Russia? Yeah. Well, (laughs) in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, we are seeing two things happen. You're seeing um, President Biden use this um, as he naturally would to try to emphasize these, this is why these issues are important. And to, on the campaign trail to make this about the democracy argument, you are, um, and this might seem counterintuitive, but it shouldn't anymore in today's day and age, seeing Trump argue it the opposite way. What, what we've seen him do is sort of uh, cast himself as a Navalny-esque figure, which is obviously you know, preposterous. Um, right. But to try to say that um, the, you know, the plight of uh, political opposition figures sort of such as himself. So he is trying to um, kind of put his own spin on this. And that's how we've really seen uh, this play out. When you ask the average American what they care about, um, they're not saying that they care about the plight of Ukrainians or the future of um, post-World War II NATO architecture. They're still talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the economy and the border. And so I think Biden has, uh, you know, clearly understands uh, his challenge in trying to make this case is that um, as long as people um, are living in a democratic society, they don't necessarily feel mm-hmm. the urgency uh, uh, or the, the fear that they wouldn't have it anymore. They are using uh, sort of the comforts of democratic society to say, hey, I, I'm, I'm much more worried about the economy right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh- I mean, let's talk about democracy. It came up at the conservative political action conference yesterday. Members of the Republican base were all there. And Trump supporter uh, Jack Posobiec spoke there, making reference to January 6th. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> we're here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor. And then hours later, uh, former President Trump in his speech to Christian broadcasters promised to, quote, bring back Christianity and its power to the U.S., and he referred to World War II. This time, the greatest threat is not from the outside of our country. I really believe this. It's from within. It's the people from within our country that are more dangerous than the people outside. We can handle China. We can handle Russia. Uh, Trump, I mean, we know, is pretty good at projection. And now it's him claiming enemies from within. Darlene, does that rally his people? We heard some cheering. Yeah, it does rally his people. And it strikes me as kind of similar to the same arguments that we hear from the former president a lot about 
uh, the deep state and all of the government institutions that are out to get him. So that's coming at him from within, right? So it's kind of the same sort of language and talk and rhetoric that we hear from the president, the former president quite often. Yeah, and listen, before we go, we just have a couple a minute and a half here. I want to talk about the primaries. We have South Carolina coming up tomorrow. Trump is ahead by 30 points over Nikki Haley. We have the Michigan primary uh, early next week on Tuesday. Just quickly from you both, um, is there any result here in either race that, that you'll be taking notice of that would indicate some major movement in this in this race? Darlene, why don't you start? I think the Michigan primary will probably be the more interesting one just for the stakes that are involved there with President Biden and the Arab American community there very upset with him over his support for Israel in Israel's war with Hamas. There are a lot of folks there who are saying they don't support him, they won't support him. Uh, There's a movement for people to vote for non-committed or uncommitted or something along those lines. So I think those would be the more interesting results. I think the South Carolina primary is a little more predictable. Margaret, I'm going to give you just the last word here. we got a couple seconds. What are you looking for? Uh, Predictable but important. Uh, This is Nikki Haley's uh, uh, best last chance to make her argument. And uh, the gap in those results and what she does in the days to follow, uh, we will all be watching. All right. It's Margaret Talov, director at Syracuse University Institute for Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship, and Darlene Superville, White House reporter of the Associated Press. Thanks to you both. Thank Thank you. you. As always, there's lots more to read and listen to on our website, hereandnow.org. We've got interviews with people close to all those stories you just heard about, from fertility doctors in Alabama to political analysts and reporters in South Carolina ahead of the primary tomorrow. Also, today, we speak to a volunteer chaplain with the Ukrainian military. You know, I delivered my my fifth child in the first day of invasion, full invasion, and, you know, and then I was taken to the bunker. So my kids were evacuated to the mountains, and me and my husband, we had to deal with with delivering a baby because I was going a little earlier because six S-300 rockets flew above our heads and then I went into delivery. And so my 14-year-old at that time, she had to be the oldest and she faced the trauma, you know, and uh, I said, if mommy and daddy will not come back, you know, you have to be an older sister, keep yourself together. Uncles and, and aunties will take you to grandma to safety, but you need to keep up. So my, my kids know about war. Hear that whole conversation and a lot more at hereandnow.org. Coming up next. Yesterday's successful lunar landing means we'll soon have new pictures of the surface of the moon. After the break, Peter speaks with one of the people who helped build the camera about what they hope to learn. All systems go when we return. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. 
United States is back on the moon for the first time in over five decades. We can confirm, without a doubt, as our equipment is on the surface of the moon, and we are transmitting. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. That is the moment the uncrewed Odysseus lander touched down yesterday near the lunar south pole. Odysseus is the result of a collaboration between NASA and a private company, Intuitive Machines, and also several universities across the country, including Florida's Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. One of the students involved is Daniel Posada, a doctoral student and one of the leads on this project. Daniel, welcome and congrats on this landing. You know, there was a time when it wasn't clear if the lander had survived. What was that moment like when you knew you'd made it? Uh, that moment was, uh, let me tell you, we were a little bit scared because, you know, we've seen in the past that landing on the moon is hard. I mean, others have tried and succeeded, but a lot of times it's really hard to stick landing. So we were all anxious, awaiting, looking at the screens. And then when we got a confirmation... I think we all feel a relief that we made it. What an achievement. Now, you developed a camera, I understand, that's a pretty important part of this mission, and it was ejected from the lander as it descended toward the lunar surface so that it could take a picture of the spacecraft as it landed? Is that right? That's correct. So the goal of the camera is to take pictures as the spacecraft's landing so that we're going to capture a first third-person view of a lunar landing, something that's never been done. We've seen a lot of videos from the Apollo landings, but they're always from the perspective of whoever is driving and going down on the lunar surface. So this is the first time that we're going to see these type of pictures. Do you have any images back from the moon yet? So right now, after landing, Intuit Machines have been working on running their procedures to make sure that everything's nominal, and they've been trying to download as much information and telemetry from the spacecraft. We know it's healthy and batteries are charging, for example, but we're waiting to get more data later down. So priority right now is to download their information. You must be on pins and needles. <laughs> what do you hope you see from this camera? Well, we definitely want to see, not for dramatic effect, but a fantastic view We want to see the lander, we want to see the sun, and maybe that lunar landscape. So we hope to see this perfect spacecraft there. And most important, of course, to see the flag of the United States because it's been 52 years, so it's exciting to be back. Now, if we step back, uh, this mission is kind of a prelude, I understand, to what might happen on the moon with humans in the future. What do you hope to learn and take away in general from this mission, not just from your camera, but from the whole mission itself? Yeah, so for example, amazing things that came from this mission is the navigation system. So they actually had to do a fix in the last minute during the actual descent, and it's amazing that we can test all these technologies to make sure that we can bring humans back and have a sustained environment at the moon. It's amazing that we get to see and test all these technology in real time, and the only way to do it is thanks to the commercial and payload services that allow us to send things at a lower cost, opening up a new economy on the moon. Daniel Posada is with Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. Congratulations and good luck with those pictures. Uh, Call us back when you get the images. Will do. Thank you so much for the invite. Coming up, Chef Kathy Gunst is back with some new recipes for soups. From a vegan squash soup to sausage leek and white bean, soups on. After the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's designed to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. 
Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code SUMMER. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. We all hear things differently, and that can be tough when there's so much noise. This election year, we're a space to speak up and to listen. Listen to 1A for the latest on election 2024, only from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. It's winter here in Phoenix, Scott, which means it's like 70 degrees and sunny. (laughs) But there is still something that feels... Put on that sweater, uh, Peter. Yeah, well, I, even if I have a sweater on, I still want to eat a really delicious soup. Uh, yeah, yeah, in our house, too, where it's a little bit more chilly. Um, and speaking of that, we just did this great white chicken chili. We tried it out, cannellini beans, smoked chicken, pickled peppers on top. Tasted really good, just took us too much time. Uh, Peter, what about you? Yeah, just today we were talking about a lentil soup for dinner with uh, tonight, and we were going to put the Anaheim chilies from our garden in there, so it sounds Ooh, like it yeah. could be delicious. Um, here at Now Resident Chef, Kathy Gunst is here with us, and I think she's probably always thinking about soup in one way yeah. or another, and she's got a few recipes for us today. Kathy, welcome back. Thank you. Yes, I am thinking about soup a lot, but both of your soups sound great. I'm not sure you need me. Oh, we need you because uh, you have these great recipes here given we're at the end of February. I gather you're bringing kind of winter slash spring soups for us today? Well, these are three new recipes and they, while hearty and nutritious, also veer towards a little bit of a lighter touch. It's that Mm. point in the season where the calendar tells us that spring's around the corner, but it sure doesn't feel like that in many parts of the country. So yeah, I started out with a sausage, leek, and white bean soup, which sounds really hearty, but there's something inextricably light and brothy about this soup. It's got leeks that are sautéed with some shallots and garlic and fresh rosemary. And then you add chicken stock or vegetable stock. It's got carrots and celery. But one of the distinguishing qualities is it's got fresh fennel, which has a wonderful, Mm. slightly licorice flavor. Mm. It just adds that little bit of something where you're tasting it and you go, ooh, ooh, what is that? And then it's got cooked white cannellini beans which you can get in a can or a box now. And then you use um, a little bit of sausage, hot or sweet Italian sausage cut into chunks, but nothing's pureed. So it's this beautiful broth with the flavors of these vegetables and the beans and the sausage. Quite simple and, to your earlier point, quite quick to make, particularly if you lean on using a good quality boxed or canned stock. You also have uh, a take on classic 
chicken and rice. And before we get to the recipe, Kathy, you mentioned chicken stock in the other in the other recipe. Do you do you make your own chicken stock? I know we do at home, and it's not it's not even that hard. Exactly. We I'm don't so glad in my home, so I'm way. listening. You don't. Okay, so listen. So he, let, let me just demystify this. Yeah. Here's what stock is. Let's say you want a chicken stock. You put parts of a chicken or a whole chicken in a pot. You throw in some carrots, some celery, and an onion. You almost fill it with water, a few peppercorns and salt. You walk away. An hour later, you have stock. And mm. not only do you have stock, you have a fully cooked chicken that you can use for tacos and sandwiches. Mm. And I like to take that stock, I'll strain it, I'll freeze it, and anytime I want to make a soup, there it is in my freezer, mm. ready. It's it's Here's the deal. Stock is the spine, the base of the soup. It's where all the flavor comes from. If you use a cruddy variety from the supermarket, you'll mm. have a good soup. Will you have a great soup? Maybe not. So mm. on a Sunday afternoon, simmer it up, whether it's a vegetable stock, a beef stock, or a chicken stock. And we do have a link on the website yeah. to all of those. Mm. And how does it go <clears> into <throat> your, your chicken and, and rice recipe here? So this to me is what I make anytime I get a tickle in my throat or I feel something coming on or you just feel like winter's lasting forever. You put a chicken in a pot, you put the you do exactly what I said or you have 8 cups of canned or boxed chicken stock. I would urge people to look for low sodium stock and organic if that's in your price range. So what you do is you just simmer the stock, whatever it is. You add some chopped onions, carrots, celery, and I add parsnips. Parsnips are a beautiful root vegetable that we see in the spring in New England. Um, it adds an earthy sweetness. It's delicious. The other thing mm. that's different in this soup is fresh dill. Wonderful spring-like herb. It adds a freshness. And then cooked chicken, and you add the white rice that you've cooked separately at the end. And this is what we called, when I was growing up, Jewish penicillin. It'll fix anything that ails you. Um, Kathy, we have just about a minute, and I want to get to this final soup you have, roasted winter squash and carrot soup. Tell us about this one, and I think you can even go vegan on this one. Yeah, this is a dairy-free and vegan soup. It has a spectacular, rich orange color. I used a winter squash. You can use a butternut, a buttercup squash, fresh carrots. This is the basis of the simplest soup of all. You roast up some squash and carrots. You throw it into a pot with some vegetable stock. Add a little bit of fresh ginger and chives. Cook it till it's tender. Whirl it up in a blender. You're done. This is this is an under an hour soup. And the color alone will make you think spring and summer will arrive. What you have just reinforced is something that I've been learning over the years, is that soup is actually pretty simple. Uh, and we've got these recipes here from Kathy Gunst at hereandnow.org. Kathy, thanks so much. Thank you. appetit and enjoy the weekend everyone that's it for us today here and now anytime comes from the team behind here and now from npr and wbur boston today's stories were produced by lynn menagon thomas danielian and emiko tamagawa today's editors were todd munt Nikaila rodriguez and kat welch technical direction from mike Moschetto and caleb green mike also wrote our theme music along with max liebman and me chris bentley our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
We'll be back with you on Monday. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR.